thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning to you. We are still basking in yesterday's glory and (laughs) it's still a big topic here. There's lots of excitement and more questions are coming through. Lee Berger has, uh, has agreed to come on the show to answer our listeners' questions, but it was absolutely fantastic. Oh, I thought it was amazing. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. It took the whole world by storm. I was watching Twitter yesterday, and it was trending just about everywhere I looked. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I make lots of radio programs in a number of different countries, and, and it was the top story everywhere. It was on, the, on the, the news roll here in Britain. It was at the top of the billing in Australia. It was also in New Zealand, same story. And so, yep. There's mm. been fantastic uptake of this, and with good reason. I mean, it's a wonderful piece of piece of research. It's a wonderful finding, and I think it will... I mean, it's catapulted South Africa again, South African science, to the top of the agenda internationally and shone a spotlight on this. But it's also involved everyone, because what I'm really proud of for the team who did this work mm. is... And, and this is what a lot of people are acknowledging. It's all about open access. It's all about getting people involved, whether you're a person in school... Uh, being stimulated to be interested in our human story and Mm. science and archaeology for the first time or whether you are a scientist at the start of your career getting involved because you have an opportunity through this project to become involved or if you're someone who's devoted their entire working life to studying this it's interesting and relevant to everybody and the team have gone out of their way to make it so and i'm really really proud of them for doing that they've done a wonderful job sure absolutely and the question that i keep getting and i asked a lot of uh, the people who were there yesterday i asked lee berger uh, people want to date these fossils and i see that the scientists are very very careful saying let's let's just be uh, a cautious we don't know yet it's millions of years could be one could be two but there's no definite uh, a, a definite answer but what i want to know is is it possible what does science need in order to ascertain uh, or, or to establish where they fitted in human evolu- evolution in terms of of, of years well when you're looking at a, a finding some kind of specimen there's a number of clues as to how old it is Mm. normally when you dig something up you will find that it will it will be at a certain depth and you can do what's called contextual analysis you look at where you find the thing you look at what it is found with you can find other species of plant for example you can find other species of animal and because we know the timelines that apply to those things we can therefore apply contextually the same relevance to our findings and say well look we found this here in the context of these other things the two must exist at roughly the same time in history now that's one approach another approach is to use other aspects of science like carbon dating carbon dating uses the half-life of carbon 14 which is made at at a constant rate high up in the atmosphere gets Mm. incorporated by photosynthesis into plant matter and therefore you end up with plants with a little bit of radiation in them as soon as the plant stops growing 
and, and is eaten by somebody, the radiation level starts to drop. And therefore you can, because that happens at a steady rate, you can use that to work out roughly how long it was since that thing was alive and breathing. Uh, but the only problem is that goes back to maybe 50, 60,000 years. So that gets you back a certain distance. And then there were other tricks that you can play. There are other types of isotopes you can look at. There are other types of chemical technique that you can use in order to get dates on things. Okay. It's very important in this setting, though. And, and I did push Charles Masiba for example, who's one of the team doing this work. I did push him to say, well, well, how old are these things? And actually, it is really, really critical that they get this right. And I think mm. that's why they're not coming straight out and speculating, because it's one thing to speculate, it's another to get it wrong and then have to recant and change things. So I think they're absolutely doing the right thing by saying, we're going to get this right, we're going to take our time and do this properly. Sure. In the meantime, rather than say, this is the date, and then you look at your findings through the blinkered vision of a date in mind and make it fit the facts, what you do is you say objectively, right, what do the facts show? What are these specimens? What do they look like? Let's make our own opinions and conclusions based on that. Then we'll add the date on top. And that way it doesn't bias you, because one of the hardest things to do in science, and in anything really, is to keep an open mind. And sometimes you can have uh, an annoying mm. kind of uh, blinkering of your vision because you get biased by prior thinking. Whereas if you come at this saying, right, yes. I'm not going to assume anything, I'm just going to let the facts speak for themselves, and then I'm going to make it, make it fit the situation. I think that's a very healthy approach, and, and that's what Charles said they're doing. Yes, absolutely. He did, he did tell us that. I mean, when I asked the question, I saw him shifting in his chair, and he had the smile on his face, <laughs> and I anticipated. I said, I know what you're going to say, but please just indulge me. But certainly I understand. Our lines are open for you on 21 we have Colin in Robertham. Good morning. Good morning. I've been driving for 55 years and I've had my fair share of punctures in that time. The worst was when a T-bone went into the tyre. But recently I was amazed to see a puncture caused by what I would call a panel pin. No more than one millimetre in diameter and 20 millimetres long. Now, how can nails and screws and little panel pins lying on the floor making or minding their own business end up in your tyre? Well, the, the fact that this is a rare occurrence speaks for itself, really. But, but the fact is, the physics is this, that when you take a fairly small force, like the force your thumb can apply to something, but you put that force over a very tiny surface area, like the head of a pin or a paddle panel pin or drawing pin the pressure at the tip of the sharp end is extremely high and it's capable of forcing its way through the matrix of the rubber and giving you a puncture now the big question is well how did something that should be lying on the ground end up sticking in your tire anyway well there's a range of possibilities one is that it was sticking into something and that something it was sticking in got into your tire tread and then the thing that was sticking through like a piece of wood or something got worn away and the nail was then pressed at the next revolution of the tyre into your tyre. It could have been that, for instance, as the front tyre went over it on the road, it flicked it up in the air and it managed to, just by chance, be happening to be pointing in roughly the right upwards direction when the wheel comes along on the back of the car, all these possibilities. The, f the fact is that the wheels are going around so many times and mm. there are so many vehicles and cars going over these things, it's od odds are that eventually someone's going to end up on the wrong end of your panel pin. Yeah, I know how painful that feels. Uh, Colin, thank you for the question. <laughs> uh, Graham in Durbanville, please stay on the line. We really like your question. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Let's go to Graham in Durbanville. Good morning. 
Good morning to you, Eddie, and hello, Chris. Mm. Quick question. Okay. Yesterday, I saw the video clip of the girl that went down into the, the cave where the uh, the lady was found. And they had headlamps, they had uh, optic fiber cables and everything. How did those people, a couple of million years ago, see all the way down there to see where they were going and what they were doing without fire? But the fire hadn't been discovered by them. Well, this is one of the other bones, if you excuse the pun, of contention because no one actually knows how they did that. They were small, these individuals, so they would have found it easier to slip down into those recesses than a modern human would. But on the other hand, they wouldn't, as you say, have had any light. As the researchers, including John Hawkes, who we also spoke to, um, emphasised, it would have been absolutely pitch black. So one can only assume, if there's no light... People's eyes weren't different two million years ago, three million years ago, or even one year ago. They must not have been able to see, so they must have done all of their movements just feeling their way along. And so that's what we at the moment presume they must have done. Mm. And also, is there something special to be read from how curved their the, the fingers are? Uh, you know, the, I read somewhere that the, the, the hands seem to have some tool-like quality, if you will. They could grip, they could uh, perhaps made for climbing. Uh, what do you say about that? Well, certainly, uh, if you look at the, the hands, they are extremely human-like in terms of size and, and mm-hmm. scale, with the exception that the fingers are quite curved. And, and I was looking at the bones, the, the thumb, as, as John Hawkes also emphasises, that thumb is pretty impressively powerful. This would have been a hand made for doing a range of different things, including climbing, which probably reflects, almost certainly reflects their origins and what they were doing with themselves. But it certainly would have endowed them with benefits and abilities to uh, get around both above ground and underground, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go to uh, Angela in Centurion. Hi. Hi, uh, morning. Um, mine is a medical one, um, uh, vitiligo. Can it be treated and cured, um, especially if noted on a youngish uh, child? And um, yeah, does it also matter on where on the body um, it, it establishes itself for, for permanent uh, treatment? Okay. Hi, Angela. Well, first of all, what is vitiligo? Well, this is what we call an autoimmune condition. The immune system, for some reason we don't understand, targets the pigment or melanin-producing cells in the skin. And the result is that where normally your skin has a basal level of melanin production, which is the dark brown stuff, which is added to skin, that level is, is produced at a certain amount continuously, but when the sun shines on the skin the level is increased. Because the immune system removes the cells and destroys the cells that add melanin to the skin, it deprives that patch of skin of the ability to make melanin, and so you end up with a very, very white patch. Even if you have white skin, the demelanized skin, subject to vitiligo attack, is extremely white. And it's not even, it's not homogeneous, in other words evenly spread all over the body, it comes in patches. There'll be one area which is affected, as you perhaps know, other areas are completely spared. The danger is that the spared area because there's no melanin there the melanin is the natural suntan it protects you against ultraviolet radiation which can damage DNA in the stem cells in the skin and and therefore could be a risk factor for skin cancer it's very important to protect those areas because they're Mm. much more vulnerable to photo damage sun damage than other bits of skin 
there is at the moment no way to restore the pigmentation to these depigmented areas because the cells that make the pigment have been lost from those areas. We also don't really know why the disease targets some areas and not others. It's not unique among autoimmune diseases that this can happen. There are a number of diseases where the immune system, for some reason, targets a particular part of the body, or, for instance, in another autoimmune condition, multiple sclerosis, targets one part of the nervous system and spares everywhere else. But then later, it might come back and target another part of the nervous system in MS. And, and so we don't really know why these areas get hit. We don't know why they get hit in the way they do. And at the moment, we don't think there's a way to put the pigment back. In the future, that may change, because what we're getting quite good at doing now is understanding how to manipulate stem cells. And it may well be possible that we could take a, a skin cell from another part of the body, mm. manipulate it in some way to proliferate it, and then get those skin cells back into, or stem cells back into the depigmented areas in order to re-endow that area with the ability to make protective pigmentation. Yeah, thank you so much, Angela, for calling. Thank you. Hans in Bruderstrom. Good morning. Morning, lady. Morning, Chris. Um, we're back with home and a lady. That's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, where I, where I live in Bruderstrom, I'm, I'm on a farm which borders the uh, the cradle of humankind, so I haven't been doing much work for the last couple of days. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful so area. Tremendously hmm. interesting. Yeah, Chris, I just want to mention uh, the uh, cradle of humankind actually lies half in... Um, in the northwestern province and half in Gauteng. So Gauteng can't totally claim this um, this discovery. <laughs> <laughs> there we go again. <laughs> and also the, the, yeah, the, the, the border actually runs right through um, the cradle of humankind between the two provinces. Okay. And if you want to access the cradle of humankind, it's actually much easier to get there from outside. So come and stay on this side. Don't stay <laughs> on the Joburg side, okay? Okay. <laughs> You've made <laughs> your point. <laughs> Yeah. And then I've got a question. Um, you know, they make a big thing about this latest discovery on the aspect that um, these humanoids actually showed some compassion or some, you know, some sort of human, uh, there's some sort of human element to them in that they have a site where they took the dead. But, hello? Yes, we're listening to you. Oh, are you still listening? Sorry, so quiet on your side. Where they took the dead. But, you know, it's happened often in South Africa, especially in the last century, uh, where we had the wars between the tribes and the Boers and the, and the black tribes, that people escaped into caves to get away from the enemy. How do we know that this, this was a similar case, where they, were, they actually went down the cave mm-hmm. um, to, to escape. Try and escape from an enemy and then died down there, you know, um, because the enemy was still outside. They didn't want to go outside. Maybe they were smoked out or something like that, you know. Chris? Well, at the moment, we don't know, in inverted commas, anything. What we have are hypotheses. And I say that's the royal we, as in everyone who's involved in this sort of thing or commenting on it or absolutely wrapped up in the excitement of it. You have to let the facts speak for themselves. And the facts uh, are, and the fact is this, is, this is a whole paper devoted to this very subject in the journal eLife, just on how these specimens happen to be in the context they were. Now, normally, when you get the situation that you're describing where someone gets chased into something Mm. or animals predate individuals and they take shelter somewhere, you don't normally find the setting that they have found with the Naledi specimens. Mm. 
What I mean by that is normally you find evidence of a mass death, the specimens are all there at exactly the same point in time and you can prove that by the deposition record. Normally there are other things there like animal bones and so on. Normally there are other clues that something like that has happened. This is very unusual, this setting, because there seems to be a unique and exclusive assemblage of just these Naledi specimens and nothing else. They also don't appear to have occurred all at once in a sort of mass death phenomenon. There appears to be something of a timeline there from my reading of the findings. And that would suggest to me that uh, if you had a relentless pursuit of people over a very long period of time, that could happen, but that doesn't really tend to happen, does it? You tend to get people um, who, who tend to have a mass wipeout and then mm. everyone becomes friends again and then things move on. This appears to have been material uh, accrued over a period of time, which isn't really in keeping with that. It's not in keeping mm. with them being flooded and washed in there. One possibility is certainly that these individuals were carrying their dead into this area. But why they should choose to do that when they, we don't think, were necessarily endowed with a very big brain. It would have only been fist or sort of orange-sized, the brains of these individuals. Um, we don't really, re really agree that these sorts of brain sizes are compatible with those sorts of behaviours. But then this is an unusual finding, isn't it? And, mm. and anything is possible. Mm. That said, there are lots of animals with very small brains. Scrub jays, for example. Um, there are people in Cambridge University who study scrub jays. They call them feathered Einsteins because these birds have the ability to to work out complicated problems. They hide things. They, they have a penchant for nicking bright objects and then stashing them away and remembering where they stash them. Mm -hmm. Even a squirrel hides nuts and things. Rats make food caches. So it may have been that these individuals were manifesting a similar sort of stashing behaviour but applying that stashing behaviour to individuals who had died. We just don't know. Yeah. And I also heard, uh, uh, Chris, I wonder if you can speak to that just to, to further make the point that in that cave there were no signs that they actually lived there. So it looks like it was as a final resting place, as it were. And if they had escaped, as uh, Hans is asking, would they not have taken some provisions with them so that you, you find uh, remnants or, or, or other remains? You talked about animal life and and, uh, and, and and all of that. And also how they were stacked on top of each other. They seemed to have been a pattern or, or, or the, you know, uh, the way they were, the, 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 they were found suggests that they were put there rather than people ju 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 just dying all at the same time. Yes, that's right. There's, there's a sequence in terms of time. They don't appear to have had a mass death. They don't appear to have been washed in there and they don't appear to have lived in there, which leaves one possibility is that they were carried in there. They were also carried in their hole, and we know this because the bones have been gone over with a fine tooth comb. There's no evidence that they were butchered, dismembered, traumatised, injured before they went into the cave. So they either died in situ in the cave or they were dead when they were carried in there. And, and we know that too because the uh, skeletal elements are in articulation. In other words, if someone had been dismantled, dismembered, broken up outside and then the bits thrown in, you wouldn't find them intact and altogether in the cave in the way that they did. You would find them scattered all over the place. So these individuals were whole and intact when they went in there in the first place and they didn't go in there um, all at once. They went in there over a a time sequence. And I had a question from uh, uh, somebody on Twitter yesterday saying, these findings confuse me. Sometimes I don't get it. How can the skeletons be so well preserved and look fresh? I don't know what looking fresh is in relation to skeletons, but we get the question, yeah? 
Well, the point is that bone is extremely hard and under the right circumstances and in the right conditions which these caves offer, then you can have extremely good preservation for extremely long periods of time. The soft tissues obviously disappear because there's a dry atmosphere there and it will, it will slowly dismantle chemically the material of soft tissue, but the bones can be preserved very, very well under those circumstances. This is not an isolated case of bones surviving for a really long time in caves. I mean, there are lots of examples of that all around the world, but this is a really nice example of a lot of specimens all in one place, all in a remarkable state of preservation, which means that it should be good to do some very good science down the line on this. And one of the big priorities, I would say, apart from getting the date, is to see if we can get DNA out of these specimens, because if they are within the realms of what we know is currently possible with DNA technology, half a million years or so mm -hmm. is the current threshold, which has been achieved in Spain with a sort of Homo erectus or Neanderthal-type uh, specimens, then it might be possible to do the same thing here. Thank you very much, Chris. Lovely, lovely show, and we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Have a lovely weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks, Reedy. Bye, everybody. Bye. We'll podcast that, of course. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.